October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Evidence History Podcast, episode number 47, Sundays in the City. Last time, we took a break and looked at how the Adventist Church was growing deep and wide, deep and wide. Ah, now you have that song stuck in your head. We talked about how the ethnic conflicts over some of the church's resources and attention, and then we closed by talking about how Uriah Smith's death was a symbol of the end of an age. Now we had cars and rampant optimism and planes and, well, speaking of new things, this episode of the Avenue History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music, reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack. Life. Culture. Theology. You weren't expecting that, were you? I hate ads, let me tell you. I mean, they're just ruining everything. I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting there listening to music on YouTube while I write this podcast, only for the song to end and you hear some dude's voice about a hundred times louder than it needs to be, telling me why I need to start paying for some meal service. Look, if you're too busy to ever go to a store and get some food, then something's wrong with you. It's not like you have to assemble a hunting party to go chase down some wild tofu in the forest. It's not hard. Shopping is an important life skill. We are doomed. Does Google just see me searching for Avenus history stuff by myself in this office and think, boy, he seems lonely. It's five o'clock. He's probably never going to get up and go to the store to get some food. I better send him some ingredients. Here, let me show him this ad. Mind your own business, Google. This is why I use iPhone. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. Look, I know my Haystack sponsorship sounds like it was written by the 42 monkeys on their marketing team. It probably was. I actually do not know that for sure. But the Haystack really is cool. They do good work for Avenist creatives. And I promise you on this podcast, I won't rep something on this show that I do not agree with. I'm not going to try to sell you razors or websites. And I'm certainly not going to pitch you one of those meal kit services. I've been happy paying for this podcast these past few years because I enjoy doing it. I don't need sponsorship. But after the Haystack brought a dump truck over to my house and dumped a huge pile of cash in my front yard, I was convinced. I mean, most of that cash happened to be IOUs, but it is the gesture that counts. They are classy people over there, and they're handing me a note I'm supposed to read. Hold on. Okay, it says here that there are no monkeys on their marketing team. Good, glad we got that cleared up. Anyway, can we get on with this episode? I'm not done talking about Google yet. In 1901, as Ellen White stood before the congregation in San Francisco, her mind returned to the same place 24 years earlier. In those early days, with her husband James by her side, they were struggling to scrape together enough money to build a church. Locals were telling her that the church she wanted to build was too big, that it would never be filled. So she sold much of what she owned back in Battle Creek and used the money to do it anyway. Now, in 1901, the members were saying the church wasn't big enough. 
Ellen called San Francisco, quote, this great and wicked city, end quote. And yet she said that San Francisco, quote, would always be an important mission field, end quote. It seems that Ellen wanted us to hold two truths in tension, that cities were both spiritually dangerous and the most urgent mission fields. Adventism, of course, was a country boy. William Miller was a farmer, and while Joseph Bates hunted people down for Bible studies in towns and cities, those people usually didn't live there. In 1844, only one out of every ten Americans lived in a city. By 1900, nearly half of Americans lived in a city. Somewhere along the way, the city was transformed from a place to meet to a place to live. Adventists saw it happening, but it was hard to tell what this would all mean. The review noted, for instance, quote, The growth of cities in the present century is without parallel or precedent in any previous age of the world. These facts require no comment. They speak for themselves. They show a change in the habits of the people of the present age, and especially in this country, which must bring with it a radical change in all the social conditions of life, end quote. Between 1900 and 1915, over 15 million people immigrated to the United States. This wave of immigration was bigger than all the immigrants who had come over since the Civil War, combined. What's more, most of the immigrants in the 1800s were native English speakers. After 1900, that was no longer true. The vast majority of these immigrants settled in cities like New York, which became overcrowded and dirty as a result. Almost everyone in New York was an immigrant or the child of an immigrant. The competition for jobs was cutthroat. Strange traditions and even stranger languages were seen and heard in the cities every day. So the Adventist motto became... Mission to the cities. Side note, that's also the current Adventist motto. So some Adventists started a vegetarian restaurant in San Francisco. Ellen White thought it was too small. But it was an example of Adventists picking up the torch, going to the cities, and trying new types of evangelism there. Despite Ellen's desire for Adventists to get busy busy in cities like San Francisco and Oakland, she also began to have premonitions about the fate of these cities. In 1902, she said, quote, Not long hence, these cities will suffer under the judgment of God, end quote, and compared them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Though not exactly for the same reason, some Christians compare those cities to Sodom and Gomorrah today. On Tuesday, April 17th, 1906, Ellen was down in Southern California to dedicate some new sanitariums, Staying in Loma Linda, she claimed to see buildings being destroyed in San Francisco. Great fires were prowling the streets. It was a scene of chaos and judgment. The next day, she arrived in Los Angeles to speak at a church. She heard the newsboys on the street corner crying out, San Francisco destroyed by an earthquake. She snatched up the paper and read the news. She was in no hurry to go home. It broke her heart to see San Francisco in such a state. The first people she saw when she finally went home were the manager of the Pacific Press and the president of the California-Nevada Conference. 
who were waiting for her at the train station. The Pacific Press building, like the Review and Herald building four years earlier, was damaged, although in this case not completely destroyed. And thankfully, nobody had died at the Pacific Press. Ellen White had called the Pacific Press out of Oakland a few years earlier, urging them to move to a more rural location. The little town of Mountain View, population 800, fluffed up the pillows and made the bed and told the Pacific Press to come on over. And by fluff up the pillows, I mean they gave the church five acres of land and a loan of $50,000. Mountain View then became an Avenus town, or at least half of it was an Avenus town. Now, today, Mountain View is best known for being Google's hometown. In fact, Google recently bought the old Pacific Press building that they had rebuilt after the earthquake. So, there's your little trivia nugget for the day. If you use it to win money, make sure you go to AdventistHistoryPodcast.org and donate some of it. Wink, wink. The San Francisco earthquake was legendary. 80% of the city was destroyed. Up to 75% of the residents were left homeless. The majority of Avenus property in the city was destroyed, but because the Pacific Press building was in Mountain View, only a few walls collapsed. You know, no big deal. It still ended up costing about $300,000 in today's money to rebuild it properly, but the intrepid employees managed to get the place up and running in a few days. They quickly went to press with nearly a million copies of a souvenir earthquake and fire special issue of the Signs of the Times. Newsboys throughout San Francisco happily earned money hawking it on street corners. The special issue responded to a question that was going around San Francisco. Naturally, was this the judgment of God? Adventists, if you couldn't tell from Ellen White's comments, believed that cities like San Francisco were filled with sin. There was too much drinking, too much gambling, too much prostitution for any self-respecting Adventist to want to live there. So you might expect Adventists to point their fingers with a big, I told you so. Instead, the signs rebuked another newspaper, which had suggested this was the work of an angry god. Augustin Bordeaux, son of the old Adventist leader Dan Bordeaux, wrote in the Signs of the Times, quote, Certainly in San Francisco, as in Babylon and Sodom of old, there was open, flaunting, God-defying wickedness. And yet, adapting the words of the Master, Think ye these Americans were sinners above all the Americans, because they have suffered these things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And that's from Luke 13. Bordeaux continues, Will the lesson, the fear, awaken only impulse to do better, or the principle to do right? End quote. Of course, it's common for some people who survive a disaster to feel invincible, as many in San Francisco did. To those people, Bordeaux noted how, quote, so many people are blind to the meaning of these catastrophes, end quote. As Bordeaux walked the ruined streets, he and his friend talked about how it seems like a mini version of the second coming of Jesus. A local doctor overheard them, and scoffed at the idea, saying he couldn't believe in a god who had anything to do with this earthquake. Bordeaux remarked that this is probably what the people in Noah's day said before the flood, 
and the doctor replied that he couldn't believe in a god who would ever bring such a flood, either. Others saw it as Bordeaux did. A wake-up call to get serious about things that matter in life. Bordeaux heard one person say, quote, God made the country, man made the cities, end quote. Which is a pretty decent summary of how Avenus looked at things, too. In the reaction to the San Francisco earthquake, we see a glimpse into America's future. I mean, don't deceive yourself thinking that all the Americans in the 1800s were just pious pew warmers who went to church every Sunday. William Miller, way, way, way back, dealt with gangs of atheists who scoffed and ridiculed him. Back then, we just called those people skeptics or infidels, a word which has taken on a few more layers of meaning since then. There was a spiritual earthquake going on in America, too. America's urban dwellers were increasingly what we would call post-Christian today. Ellen White downplayed the idea, in case you were wondering, that she predicted the earthquake. Premonitions, yes, but not predictions. To her, it was as simple as reasoning from spiritual cause to effect. The cities had everything a man needed. What was God for? To Ellen White, this wasn't sustainable. You simply cannot ignore, let alone do things that mock your creator and expect that things won't happen. The influence of cities extended even to Mountain View. There had long been controversy over the fact that Adventist printing presses often did secular commercial work in order to make ends meet. From their point of view, they simply had to. Three months after the Pacific Press team built a new wood building after the earthquake, it burned down. The whole thing. And many took it as a sign. And so the press stopped printing commercial secular work. Adventists didn't seek to point fingers when a natural disaster happened. Like, this flood has befallen thee because thou lovest thy Netflix too much. But they did believe natural disasters were something to learn from. They listened in these disasters to see if God was speaking through the storm. Ellen White listened in such situations, but she wanted to be more proactive in reaching the cities. One time she said she wished she was 25 years younger. I imagine that no one reminded Ellen that she was then 78 years old. Ellen, honey, 25 years ago you would have been 53. Most people are winding down in their 50s and you're over here like, man, I wish I was in my 50s again. I'd hit those streets telling people about Jesus. But she was feeling her age. She began telling people that her work was almost done. She had no desire to live longer than God willed her to live. Bedtime was often a battle between sleep and pain. One restless night she drifted off into a dream or vision or something. She felt no pain. Light seemed to fill the room. There was singing on the breeze. She heard the voice of God say, Fear not, I am your Savior. And she knew it was heaven. It was peace at last. She wrote, quote, Now I can be at rest. I shall have no more messages to bear, no more misrepresentations to endure. Everything will be easy now, and I shall enjoy peace and rest. Oh, what inexpressible peace fills my soul. Is this indeed heaven? Am I one of God's little children? And shall I always have this peace? End quote. But that same 
holy voice responded to her and said, Your work is not yet done. Most of her work these days was writing, which is kind of funny because when she was younger and traveling all the time and had energy, she wished she could just settle down and write. Now that she's older and settled down, she wished she had more energy to travel. Your heart is in the right place, sister. Bless you. Church leaders thought San Francisco needed some young blood, so they brought in the hot young evangelist William Ward Simpson. I mean, that his preaching was hot, not that he was hot, although that mustache was boss. I'll post a picture on the Facebook page for you. I'm sitting here trying to figure out if the guy's attractive or not as I write this, you know, in, in some detached sense, of course. And then I look next to him and see his wife's expression and that look on her face, which is like, dude, back off my husband before I hit you with this cast iron pan. Whoa, Nelly, just settle down there. He's all yours. Anyway, W.W. Simpson was an interesting character. After he joined the church in 1890, he worked at the Review and Herald like many others. Getting tired of operating the machinery, he just walked out one day and started preaching. He was arrested in Canada for working on Sunday and put in jail, and in later years he had a sketch drawn of him standing in jail behind bars, and he used that sketch in his advertising for his evangelistic efforts. He could also balance a broom on his nose, you know, in case you were wondering. Ellen White loved Simpson's creativity, and she encouraged it. So when Simpson came to preach in Oakland, he brought with him some of the strangest things in Adventist history. Paper mache beasts. You know, like the creatures from Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. Creative, yes. But they are also hideous monstrosities that a Hollywood prop studio made for him. And they still haunt the Center for Adventist Research at Andrews University, so go check it out if you're brave enough to ever go to Michigan. Adventists had always used visual aids from William Miller's prophecy charts to, well, Simpson's papier-mâché beasts. The beasts did their job and remained in service for several decades, even if they now haunt the dreams of children and small animals. Ellen White loved Simpson. She thought he was intelligent and wise, and that he reminded her of the good old days of 1844 when creative young preachers flourished under Miller's tent. She liked that Simpson refused to get baited into arguments with other Christians. She liked that he didn't comment too much when he preached. He just read a verse, said a few words, read the next verse. There was even a rumor that the Simpson family was going to get their own reality TV show called... Well, well you figure that one out. So it was really tragic when William Ward Simpson suddenly and tragically passed away the year after he spoke in Oakland. Simpson was a rising star, and his premature death felt a little like his wings were clipped before he even flew. It would have been as if A.T. Jones would have died in 1884 or something. Too soon. The work in the city wasn't entirely motivated by, to paraphrase The Little Mermaid, wanting to be where the people are. In the past few years, there had just been so much controversy in the church over Kellogg and Jones and Wagner and Ballinger, although we didn't talk about that dude, and others, Ellen White thought a good way to heal was just to get busy. She wrote, quote, 
It is not the Lord's will that his people shall be forever discouraged by dissension and strife. Let all go to work for perishing souls, and as a result, a work of grace will be done for their own souls. End quote. Ellen wrote to Daniels, telling him that, quote, voices are to be heard in every city, proclaiming the last message of mercy to the world, end quote. This was not just a, hey guys, we should be doing more kind of pep talk letter. Ellen White was desperate about working in the cities. She cajoled the general conference president to go lead by example. Daniels, of course, already had a million things to do. Of all his job descriptions, one of the few that he didn't have was being an evangelist. And now Ellen was adding that to his business card. Well, he would get to it all right, you know, when he had time. Even Willie White didn't fully understand his mother's fever over the subject. He said, quote, It seems to me that there must be some great crisis just before us. I cannot in any other way understand the intensity of mother's distress regarding our slowness of action and getting the work going in our big cities. End quote. In other words, mom must know something. She has prophetic eyes in the back of her head or something. Some cataclysm is about to befall the world. That's why she's so urgent about this. When Daniels was in Northern California, he wanted to come see her and talk about how some of the preaching was going in New York City. Ellen White refused to see him unless he personally would agree to lead in urban evangelism himself. Daniels, of course, agreed, but to Ellen he seemed to drag his feet. She thought Daniels was not connected to the Holy Spirit or else he could see how urgent this was. She thought Daniels needed reconversion and openly wondered why the church kept him on as president for so long. Daniels was understandably confused and hurt. Membership in New York City had multiplied since he took office. Tithe was up there. He didn't think Ellen White had any clue how hard it was. He had a point. I mean, no Adventist had any clue how hard it was. Adventists tended to believe that urban evangelism was... Uh, duh, evangelism that's just done in the city. But as Daniels and everyone else involved found out, it's a completely different animal than evangelism in the country. Adventists had always had the pulse of rural life. They understood the life of country folk revolved around crops, growing season, animal life cycles. They understood their values, their way of life. So it was a shock to realize that city life had different timetables, different priorities in life. Adventist preachers in the country were often the most interesting thing around. I mean, they rode into town from far-off places, put up a big tent. They sang and taught and preached and shared stories from different parts of the world. But when Adventists did that in New York City, would they be the most interesting thing around? Of course, the last thing that Adventists wanted to be is entertaining by any stretch of that word. But this was becoming an age where preachers were growing more and more entertaining, breaking the social conventions of how a preacher was supposed to behave. The up-and-coming poster boy for this was Billy Sunday, who famously preached a sermon to 17,000 women after he told the men to, and I quote, beat it. Sunday was offended that there were, in his words, quote, more feathers than whiskers in the pews of many churches. 
He famously prayed, quote, Lord, save us from off-handed, flabby-cheeked, brittle-boned, weak-kneed, thin-skinned, pliable, plastic, spineless, effeminate, ossified, three-carat Christianity, end quote. Other preachers lamented how religious art throughout history typically depicts Jesus as effeminate. Bruce Barton, on the opposite side of the theological culture wars as Billy Sunday, nevertheless added that religious art has depicted Jesus, quote, as weak, as a man of sorrows, uninspiring, glad to die, end quote. Jesus, Barton said, was an outdoor man. So welcome to the age of muscular Christianity. Billy Sunday didn't mind talking about hard things, things good Victorian Christians wouldn't discuss publicly. Billy Sunday was theater. He was conservative, fundamentalist, Christian theater. He railed against alcohol and tobacco more persuasively, perhaps, than any Adventist. He was a public preacher plugged into America's culture wars. He supported America in World War I, saying that God was on America's side and the Kaiser was back-talking to God and he'd have to be disciplined soon. He was a thoroughly modern preacher, not because his theology was everyone's theology. No, he was a thoroughly modern preacher because he was a personality. He cultivated an image. He was a character on the stage of American public life, and millions came to hear him preach in the country and the city. Sunday started out ministry just as cerebral as Adventist preachers. He said, quote, I wrote sermons with sentences so long they'd make a Greek professor's jaw squeak for a week, end quote. His ministry transformed from these long sentences to short, pithy, punchy, everyman kind of language sermons. For instance, he said, quote, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. End quote. You can see why people loved him. You can see why people got fired up to be around him. He sometimes challenged local churches, saying churches have become places for sissies, although that's my word, not his. He said that there's no power in so many churches. There's no passion. There's no victory. There's no purpose. And in that way, he was a modern preacher, too, because he seemed to, to tacitly acknowledge the secret feelings of many Christians that church was often boring and lifeless. It needed some energy. It needed some conviction. And one reason I think Ellen White was so worked up about preaching to the cities wasn't just because people were moving there. It was because urban America represented the way the world was trending. And Ellen White recognized that Adventists were going to get caught with their pants down, metaphorically, in coming decades if they didn't strategically shift their forces to deal with the fact that a religion in America was changing. Modern Christianity was increasingly personality-driven. As we said, Billy Sunday was a character. He was the anti-preacher in some ways, even while he was still theologically conservative. He was entertaining the watch. You never knew what that dude was going to say next. Adventists were horrified by all of these qualities, except the theologically conservative part. The gospel was good news, yes, but it was serious news. Those who proclaimed it should be dignified. It should be presented in a clear and interesting way, but it should appeal to one's reason and good sense. 
That's what Adventists believed. Changing, of course, for Adventists did not mean mindlessly adopting the techniques of other preachers. Okay, as we've noted, Billy Sunday, among other preachers, presented a huge problem to Adventists. He was just too sensational, too dramatic. But Adventists did appreciate how revival popped up in his wake. An Adventist in the Atlantic Union Gleaner captured the ambivalence toward Billy Sunday nicely. Quote, While some of Mr. Sunday's language and methods have been severely criticized, he preaches many truths in his own unique way. He calls sin by its right name, whether it be among the high or low. He denounces unsparingly the liquor traffic, dancing, card playing, theater going, and attacks in the most telling way higher criticism, evolution, infidelity, that means atheism, spiritualism, and Christian science. He has preached on the Ten Commandments, the Second Coming of Christ, the Signs of the Times, the Millennium, and, of course, an eternally burning hell. As a result, many are aroused as never before to know what the Bible really teaches. Pray for the workers here that we may know how to make use of this opportunity. End quote. So what you see during these years is a conversation in the church about how to maintain their traditional rural values while working as urban evangelists, while working in this new age with this modern Christianity. In 1912, Daniels would convene a council of pastors and others who wanted to learn how to do urban evangelism. Daniels said that the church was, quote, utterly unprepared for the city problem, end quote. Well, at least he's honest. The questions Daniels asked of the delegates showed how much Adventists were learning and unlearning about the evangelism that they had mastered over the past 70 years. At the top of the list, advertising. How do we do it in the city? How should a speaker describe himself in his advertisements? How do we use the local press? How do we preach in the city? Where do we preach in the city? How do we use the Bible? With these kinds of questions, Daniels and company was hitting the reset button. Let's start over. Let's assume nothing. Everything is on the table. So they got together and Googled how to do urban evangelism. Google. Sorry. I mean, they physically got in the same room and talked about it. Weird, huh? The delegates were brutally honest. That was the best part. It was getting more common for someone to advertise themselves as a renowned speaker who has captivated audiences around the world or something like that. To some, that smacked of pride. To others, it was just how you had to advertise these days. One delegate basically said, well, if they're a good speaker, then advertise it. If they're not, then don't. Let's just be honest about it. To quote him, there is a difference between a great series of sermons, a series of great sermons, and a series of sermons on great subjects. End quote. Advertising should reflect what a thing is, understanding that not every Adventist preacher is gifted in the same way. When it came to the Bible, Daniels acknowledged that the modern trend was to not read the Bible too much in a sermon. W.W. W. Prescott was more concerned about how the Bible is used. He asked, if we are just preaching some list of doctrines, or are we preaching salvation through Jesus in our evangelism? Prescott wasn't just repeating the old chorus from 1888. It was a recognition, I think, that some of the modern preachers, like Billy Sunday, were preaching Jesus much more effectively than Adventists were, or that they were doing a better job of tying the doctrines into Jesus. Still, Ellen White's stubborn insistence that Adventists pivot toward the cities paid dividends everywhere. 
Adventism had been comfortable reaching out to the lower classes of society. Of course, there were plenty of those in the city as well. But in the city, they also had to confront the middle class in a way that they hadn't before. As a result, Adventism opened up a little as it tried to learn how to appeal to different classes of people in society. And it paid off. After a decade of stagnating growth and fierce infighting among themselves, Adventist membership again began to take off like a rocket. Looking back years later, this is how Daniels put it. Quote, A deep religious revival and reformation are in progress among our people. Sin is being made to appear exceedingly sinful, and in the name of the Lord it is being renounced. Hearts are being given a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness of God, and it is being laid hold of by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A full surrender of the whole life, heart, body, time, talents, and means is being made to God for the finishing of his work in the earth. It is difficult to tell just when and how this revival began, but it is here, and there is a great rejoicing over the glorious results it is producing. It seems to have begun in the very earnest appeals of the spirit of prophecy, meaning Ellen White, during 1909 in behalf of the millions of lost souls in the great cities. End quote. Ellen White, keeping the church focused, flexible, and free. Oh, and did we mention that this cat turned 82 in 1909? This girl is Moses up on the rock with her hands in the air, and she ain't putting them down until the battle is won. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.